0: This is the Enoughism Podcast, about living with enough already. I'm just a minimalist who wants more. Warning, this show may change your life. Hello and welcome to episode two of Enoughism. Today, I am answering the question, could you live like a Buddhist monk? You might initially have immediate reactions to this question. You might say, Yes, I could, or No way. Well, Buddhist monks are perhaps some of the original minimalists. You could also argue that monks are really the ultimate social distancers, meaning that they tend to live alone by choice. I'm also very curious if there happen to be any Buddhist monks listening to this show. Um, I would love to know your perspective, and definitely feel free to drop me an email in the show notes if you are listening to this and you are a Buddhist monk. But Buddhist monks have historically been allowed to possess eight items. This is a strict list per se, but according to the Pali Canon of the Theravada School of Buddhism and Madonna.org, these items are an inner robe, an outer robe, a third robe to offer protection if the first two robes don't do their job protecting you from the weather. So right off the bat, you have eight items and three of them are robes, a bowl that you would use to bag, a water strainer, a razor that is used to shave your head and your beard, a needle thread. I assume that counts as one item that definitely doesn't weigh much. Um, and that is used to mend your clothing and approved medicine as needed. And there are other authorized items that Buddhist monks are sometimes allowed to use as well, and these include things like soap, a lamp, a pair of scissors, a passport, and things like that. And the goal of living this way is to detach from things. So I find this concept especially fascinating now that we are in the era, essentially, of social distancing and isolation. And many people right now, especially those in cities, for example, are looking to move and to move quickly. So, that being said, Buddhist monks in the modern era are essentially adapting to the novel coronavirus pandemic, just like the rest of the world is. There is a Buddhist monk by the name of Daniel Thorson, and he was absent from society for two and a half months, and he reemerged smack dab. In the middle of the coronavirus. So according to mcall.com, Daniel spent 75 days at the beginning of 2020 in isolation, conducting a silent meditation in a cabin that was in a very desolate part of Vermont. And he decided after he had ended that 75 days of isolation to log on to Twitter. And he tweeted out to his followers, did I miss anything? Online, people are comparing him to Rick Van Winkle, which seems appropriate. He ended his retreat by going to the supermarket, and he could feel the energy and the stress and the anxiety of the people around him. I don't know if he could see people wearing masks necessarily, but he didn't know what was going on. And the article on mcall.com mentions that he was very much aware that people were recoiling back in his presence. I assume that's because he didn't have a mask on. And he says in this article that he didn't understand. Upon realizing what had happened during his 75 days of isolation, he said that it struck him that everyone was talking about the same thing, the coronavirus. He thought it was amazing that there was no talk about the election. I doubt he could fathom a world like that. There was no news about Brexit. He said what struck him especially was that everyone seemed to have a very strong opinion about what was happening. He said, quote, people are so desperate to make sense of it, end quote. And I mentioned this story at the beginning of today's show because the art of minimalism, and I like to call it an art, is taking on a new meaning with coronavirus, especially as more people, especially those in cities and people all around the world, are not only looking to reduce their things quickly, to move and to migrate, but they're also in a state of reflection. This pandemic is essentially causing many people in many ways to reassess what they value, to reassess what's important to them, to live on edge, to live in a state of heightened awareness. If you search for extreme minimalists, similar to Buddhist monks, for example, online, you'll come across some, well, extreme examples. According to AOL.com, there's one extreme minimalist who lives in a pod chair. His name is Stephen Johnson. And Stephen Johnson owns slightly more items than a Buddhist monk does. Eleven items, to be exact, including one outfit. I hope, for lack of a better word, that, that one outfit is included within that 11 items as one item, because I could very easily, as a woman at least, who enjoys fashion, consider 11 items as one outfit. By the time you do earrings, does that count as two? Does a necklace count as three? Does a shirt count as four? Does a pair of pants count as five? Stephen Johnson says, quote, every single day, is choose your own adventure, end quote. And he calls the experience of extreme minimalism very freeing. In the meantime, upon my own journey towards minimalism, and I say towards because I don't believe minimalism is something you can necessarily achieve. I believe it's an ongoing goal. There are many minimalists in the YouTube community, for example, who have different definitions of what minimalism is. Some mirror lives of monks. Consider a minimalist YouTuber from Austin, I enjoy very much. Her name is Yuham Sun. Her YouTube channel is called Heal Your Living. This young woman calls herself an extreme minimalist. How extreme? Well, in an interview with AOL Lifestyle, she mentioned she has a furniture-free apartment with a hammock as a bed that she can essentially fold up into a backpack. She says, quote, I don't believe everyone has to eliminate furniture in their life to find happiness or to cultivate mindfulness, end quote. She also says that her space is filled with more nourishment and the things that nourish her instead of furniture. And she mentions that her furniture is something that she considers to hinder her space and she enjoys moving freely around her space and there are other minimalists on YouTube that I follow. For example, Brittany Taylor and Connor McMillan. Uh, Their channel is called The Thriving Minimalist. And they also live in a primarily furniture-free apartment and they practice acrobatics and they do a lot of working out. And I mean I personally live in a very small studio apartment in the middle of the city. And when I first started mirroring this kind of lifestyle and I started really decluttering my furniture, The idea of having a space that is open, it really does encourage you. I find myself wanting to do yoga because I can keep my yoga mat out all the time. It's not something that I fold away and put in the corner of a closet. There is an episode also of Minimalist Podcast that I listened to recently. And it talked about how when you take items in your house and you just move them, to a different location, you're more likely to use them. So, for example, if you have your workout gear in the back of a closet, you may open your closet every day and see those weights and that yoga mat in the back of your closet. Maybe it's right there in front of your eyes every day. But there's something about it being tucked away in a closet psychologically where you close the door and then you forget about it as opposed to keeping it out in your space. you know, Putting your workout clothes next to your bed so that in the morning you see them, you put them on immediately. It's a very powerful thing. And moving your items from the closet 10 feet away so that they're next to your bed in the morning can make a really big difference in what kinds of habits you adapt. And I found that really fascinating. Now, going back to the idea that you hum personified, which is um, having a bed, that you essentially fold up and put away in a corner. In Japan, for example, a concept like this is perhaps very common, and I actually own a bed like this that I really enjoy. In the 16th century Japan in particular, both nobility and samurai slept on tatami mats, and that is according to yahoo.com, and these are mats that they would air out in the sun later that day. According to Michael Tetley, he is a physiotherapist who observes how creatures in the forest slumber. You don't actually need a pillow when you sleep. That is something I find a little hard for myself to adapt. I sleep kind of like a starfish in a cocoon of blankets. But according to Michael, he asks in his research, quote, "Has anyone ever seen a gorilla shinning up a tree with a pillow?" End quote. Minimalism has no right or wrong. Just like Ideas like this are essentially not right or wrong. Minimalism is about looking at items for what they are, not what society yourself thinks they are. Let's try an exercise to train your mind as a minimalist. And you can do this no matter where you are on your minimalist journey. Think right now of who you are using three nouns. So a noun is a person, place, or thing. The words you think of now may help determine how far along you are on your minimalist and spiritual journey. At least this is my theory. Words like dad, doctor, and grandmother are nouns many people may choose at first, and these are words that tie you to the physical realm. Now go deeper. Imagine a tree, for example, without a name. Essentially, this tree is just a mass of leaves. Also, imagine leaves without a name. Imagine the bark and the roots, also without a name. This kind of concept is what I first heard from spiritual teacher and writer Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle has authored many books, including The Power of Now, which you may have heard. Eckhart says, quote, Look at a tree, a flower, a plant. Let your awareness rest upon it. How still they are, how deeply rooted in being. Allow nature to teach you stillness, end quote. The question is, can you think this way now about yourself? Try again with three new nouns. Maybe words come to your mind like warrior, adventurer, or even class clown. That counts. It's this kind of thinking I think minimalists are especially good at because they've learned to detach themselves from labels. They question their greater roles in life the role of their belongings, and what role their greatest passions play in their lives. And this is definitely something I think more and more people are doing now during this time of the evolving pandemic. So that exercise isn't easy. And if you do something like journaling, for example, I recommend you make that a part of your exercise. Regarding my own experiences with this kind of more abstract thinking, I've learned that minimalism is not just about living with less. It's about living with purpose and making room in your mind and your heart for what fills you with bliss and peace. So here are two very simple, yet life-changing, personal examples of how I've incorporated more minimalism in my own life, perhaps in a way to live a little bit closer to that of a Buddhist monk. First, I got rid of my television. Now, we all have mini TVs in our pockets at all times via our phones, but something about getting rid of the TV itself, which takes up energy in a room, made a really big difference in how I felt. According to a study by Comcast, the coronavirus in particular has changed how Americans watch TV. The average American home has the TV on for 66 hours a week. Streaming and online video consumption is up by over a third, since before things were shut down in mid-March 2020. This is according to studyfinds.org. There's a 40% increase recently in late night TV watched between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. And people are apparently watching a lot more news. Drama shows, in particular, are much more popular. By getting rid of my television, I had the mental clarity, energy, and drive To write these very words and to start a new podcast. I'm staring at these words right now in live time as I read them out to you from my script on my laptop. And soon, someone like you will be consuming my ideas and digesting my content, judging it, assessing it, agreeing with it, or questioning it curiously. Perhaps one day, these very words that I'm speaking will even be translated into another language, maybe one that I don't speak and my ideas then reach the minds of people I myself cannot communicate with, except for with the help of Google Translate. These kinds of ideas are ones I feel like I'd have time to develop because I got rid of my TV. I've been able to slow down my life, sit in stillness, and ask myself, what matters to me? And for me, that was creating content instead of just mindlessly consuming content. So in this way, Consider how choosing to be bombarded day in and day out with the news. I'm talking about the kind of news that's more drama than information. You need to make a life decision and how this news weighs heavily on your mind. Watching too much TV means you're being passively simulated. The thing is, watching TV starts young for many people. How young? Think three years old. According to K10.com, YouTube dominates the viewing habits of many three and four-year-old children. You might wonder how kids so young know how to use YouTube. The answer is the microphone. According to pediatrics, up to 75% of young kids have their own tablets. According to K10.com, even having a TV in the same room as your baby or toddler negatively affects how they play, and how they interact with others. And this isn't something I think changes just because you become an adult. TV also prevents flow states. You know that feeling when you're in a flow state? Maybe you get lost in a good book for hours with no concept of what time it is. Maybe when you play basketball, you're in the zone, hardcore. Maybe when you're driving down the freeway late at night with the windows down and the radio up, you find your mind is finally able to shut off just a little bit. That feeling when your mind gets lost, chase that. Choose to chase that by your actions, the ones driven by your thoughts. Be mindful by getting rid of what no longer serves you and what actually stresses you out, even though you choose to do that all day long. It's okay to not know what a tiger king is or what a real housewife is. I think a lot about how the world's greatest minds have recorded their thoughts and how they live in this state of flowing. Once I went to the Writers Museum in Dublin. As a writer, it was a dreamy experience. Original typewriters from the author of Frankenstein. Oh, can you imagine the hell of not being able to press the delete key? Notebooks filled with impeccable handwriting. People wrote so neatly a century or two centuries ago, and even more impeccable ideas. Ideas written out by hand, which I like to believe were perhaps under a combination of candlelight and moonlight. I suddenly found myself at that museum, yearning to live and write in a world where things used to be different, without Twitter feuds, without hashtags and Instagram filters, without the mental clutter the Western world tends to bring without the constructive conversations versus the spewing of ideas intended to just get a reaction. There was once a world without TV. Let's go back to a time of simplicity, and that's something we can choose to create ourselves. A second way to essentially live a little more like a Buddhist monk, and again, this may seem very simple at first, but bear with me. Make your own coffee in the morning. Five-dollar lattes definitely minimize my wallet in a bad way anyway. I make my own cup of joe, just how I like it, almond milk with a splash of stupidly strong coffee, some cinnamon, a sly, sideways glance at the salt shaker, and a kiss of vanilla extract. While I make my coffee, I practice gratitude. I think about where the ingredients came from and how they miraculously arrived at my door. I was making coffee recently that came from Costa Rica, and it just blew my mind, Thinking about how the coffee I'm holding in my hand was once in the ground on the other side of the world. Perhaps this is a form of prayer, essentially, no matter what your religion. Maybe, in a way, you practice thankfulness for the food and thankfulness for it being on your plate. Whatever you wish to call this kind of thinking, it slows down my mind and it connects me to my belongings in the same way it would perhaps if I were a monk with only eight belongings to my name. In future chapters, I'll be exploring with you my journey to live out of no more and no less than three suitcases. This is something I've had a desire for for a very long time. I'll be talking about topics like how to meditate, how the law of attraction can change your life, how to manifest your dreams into reality, how to stay motivated, the power of journaling, especially bullet journaling, how writing can free your mind, the power of creativity, finding your life purpose, spirituality amidst the coronavirus, minimalist style, and many more topics. And I thank you for listening to my thoughts today on Enoughism. You've made it to the end of the Enoughism podcast. Thanks for listening. Can't get enough of Enoughism? Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at I am Enoughism questions or comments, drop me a note at enoughismpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. I'll see you next time.